We started last week looking at the concept that is often called being filled with the Spirit. And uh, although I find it a little bit difficult to pin a definition on that, uh, it seems to imply guidance and empowering. Uh, so we saw Bezalel, for instance, was filled with the Holy Spirit in order to have skill in uh, crafting things out of gold and bronze and silver and wood so that he could uh, build the elements for the tabernacle. <clears throat> Moses was filled with the Spirit as he led the nation of Israel through the wilderness. Uh, we saw prophets that were filled with the Spirit to speak and to write God's words in Scripture. Uh, and so the, the filling of the Spirit, as we talked about last week in the Old Testament, uh, seems to be connected to specific tasks that God has chosen certain people to do. Um, <clears throat> so we saw that not, not everyone in Israel was filled with the Spirit. It was, it was key people that God had appointed over a specific thing, whether it was leadership, uh, speaking on God's behalf, or even something that uh, we don't tend to think of as super spiritual, but something like building stuff uh, in the case of Bezalel. Now we're going to transition into the New Testament. And uh, as we do so, we're going to first look at Jesus. Uh, Jesus was, of course, uniquely filled with the Spirit. He's the only person in history uh, that has followed every prompting and guidance the Spirit gave him throughout his life. Um, starting in the book of Isaiah, we'll see some prophecies about Jesus and his being filled with the Spirit. Isaiah 11, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay, so the Spirit will be on this descendant of Jesse, which would be Jesus, <clears throat> and the manifestation of that will be things like wisdom, knowledge, understanding, might, and so forth. Later, uh, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly uh, burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. And so actually, this is a great passage um, talking about the growth of God's kingdom, something that we've been talking about quite a bit in the book of Luke. You see that this servant that God puts his spirit on <clears throat> is going to establish justice throughout the world. That's When it says the coastlands wait for his law, it's basically saying everywhere, you know, from sea to shining sea, everywhere, uh, even the edges of society, everything is going to be under subjection to Christ's law. Verse 5, thus says God, the Lord, uh, Yahweh there, who created the heavens and stretched out them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So Isaiah says there is coming this man, someone who will be filled with the Spirit, and he will establish justice throughout the world. He'll be given as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. He'll open blinded eyes, lead prisoners out of darkness. This, of course, is speaking of Christ being guided by God's Spirit uh, as he accomplishes the redemption of the world. Uh, one more prophecy in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the, uh, of the Lord God is upon me. By the way, um, 
we've said before that when you see Lord in all caps, it's not actually the Hebrew word for Lord. It's not Adonai, Lord or Master. It's God's personal name, Yahweh, right? Same thing when you see God in all caps. The reason that's in all caps is what's, you see the word right before it is Lord. Okay, so again, because they don't want to translate Yahweh as his personal name, if they did it, because uh, I don't know how to explain this. The word before is Adonai. It's the word for Lord there, because it's not in all caps. So instead of saying Lord, Lord, with all caps, they switch it to Lord God, with all caps. But that's still, so, so in other words, this, if you were reading this in Hebrew, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, is what's being said there. Anyways, and then you see they flip it back to all caps Lord later, because Yahweh is mentioned again. So reading this as it is originally, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those that are bound. Okay, so those are three prophecies in the book of Isaiah where God tells us of this coming Messiah, how he will be filled with the spirit. The spirit will guide him, will empower him. And all of this we see fulfilled starting with Jesus' baptism. It is there that the spirit fills Jesus, and he begins his public ministry. Mark 1, verse 10, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit, notice verse 12, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So you see, the Spirit comes on Christ as he's coming up out of the waters in baptism, and then immediately the Spirit leads him or drives him into the wilderness. So the implication there is that the Spirit remains on Christ from that day forward throughout the rest of his ministry. Okay, so when the Spirit descends on him at his baptism, that is a visible manifestation to John the Baptist in particular, as we'll see, that this is the Messiah. This is the one that God said, my Spirit will be on him. And you see it descending on him at the baptism and remaining throughout the rest of his ministry. And so from that point forward, he was guided and empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit led him, gave him the words to speak, gave him the places to go, the things to do, just led him throughout the rest of his ministry. Uh, this is what John the Baptist said that God had basically told him would be the sign of Messiah. John 1 verse 32, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Again, that's very key, that it remains on him from that day forward. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So when the Spirit comes down on Christ, remains on him, John says, that's how I know this is the promised Messiah. Uh, Luke gives us a few more clues about this in his account. Uh, following, this is immediately after the baptism, as we'll see, verse uh, 22 of Luke 3. Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, and, and uh, with you I am well pleased. And then the very next thing that happens, chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit, I'm sorry, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So again, you see the Spirit remains with him and leads him into the desert for that time of temptation with Satan. And then verse 14, after that temptation is over, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And so he is filled with the Spirit, and it continues leading him and guiding him throughout his ministry. Uh, two verses later, we see, verse 16, He came to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue, and the Sabbath day he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what we just read in Isaiah 61. He rolls up the scroll, verse 20, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. This would be the point at which someone would begin teaching. Uh, interesting, in, at least at this point in time in, in uh, the history of the synagogues, people sat down to teach, which I think is a really great idea. Uh, so they would stand up to read scripture, and then they would sit down to expound on it. Verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he reads this verse about the Spirit of God falling on the Messiah and anointing him to, you know, open blinded eyes, set at liberty those who aren't captives. And then he says, his explanation of that text is, you're seeing it take place before your eyes. In other words, he's saying, that's me. I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. Now, one might be tempted to think, uh, Jesus is God. Therefore, he shouldn't need the Spirit to guide him or empower him. Okay, and, and what is wrong with that question? Why is that not the right way to think of this? Anything come to mind? You understand the question that I'm asking? If Jesus is God, why does he need God to guide him? Right? How would you answer that? Jesus is in submission to God. Okay. I think that's one aspect. Yep. Okay. Okay. I think, um, remember the illustration I gave from a few weeks ago, the king that becomes a, you know, lives among the poor for a while and he takes on their life. We always got to keep in mind when we're reading about Jesus post-incarnation, when he's, you know, a human, you know, I feel like we don't, sometimes we don't understand what takes, how much changes when Jesus becomes a human. He goes from being an omnipresent God to being confined to a physical body. Okay, I don't believe, you know, some people have tried to circle that square and say, well, no, he's still omnipresent. He's everywhere and he's in the... No. The scripture seems pretty clear that Jesus takes on the limitations of human flesh. And part of that seems to include, as we see in other texts, um, you know, that he sets aside some of his divine prerogatives, right? He says, only the Father knows when I return. I don't even know. And you go, wait a minute, I thought he's God, he should be omniscient. Well, he sets aside some of that when he takes on the limitations of becoming a human. He's still God, just like the king is still the king, okay? But, but he's, he's robing himself in human flesh. And so he needs to be guided by the Holy Spirit because he is truly a man. Um, he's still God, but he's not, he does not have the full, uh, how should I say this? He, he has set aside something of his divine power uh, as we see you know, lays it aside. It's not taken from him or anything. He, he still has that authority, but he lays things aside as he becomes a human being. And so it seems to me that that at least uh, helps to answer the question as to why God would need to be guided by God, right? Um, in fact, 
well, I don't want to get on this rabbit trail too far. There's questions about, you know, when did Jesus even know? When did he know that he was God? When he was two years old, did he have that awareness? I don't know. I, go ahead. Yep, and so some people seem to think that that was the moment when he realized it, when he was 12 at his bar mitzvah, um, that at that point, kind of an awareness came on him of who he was. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but it's hard for me to imagine if he was truly a man that as a baby, before he learned to speak, he knows that he's God. I, I think there had to have been an awareness that came later. Um, but anyways... Yeah, I'm not sure that she did, actually. If you, if you read in Luke, the first couple of chapters, it continually mentions that Mary kept these things in her heart. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that means she never told anyone, but it's, I don't know. It seems to imply to me that she, she just kind of saved that and wanted to see what happened. I don't, I don't know. Um, maybe she didn't want to manufacture something, and I, I'm not sure. But anyway, so Jesus was, he, he was a true human. He was guided. He was empowered by the Spirit. Um, in some ways, like the rest of us, right, like all, all Christians now anyways, uh, guided, empowered by the Spirit. And yet there's also something different here. Jesus was um, empowered to do things that you and I don't do, right? He walks on water. He raises the dead. He does, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and so John 3, verse 34, he, uh, he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Okay, interesting phrasing there. Jesus was given the Holy Spirit without measure. Um, there was some sort of, you know, unique, special way in which Jesus, unlike anybody in human history before or after, was guided completely by God's Spirit in everything that he did and said. And so that's why verse 34 can say, he utters the words of God for, because he has the Spirit without measure. And so every time he opens his mouth, he is speaking as the Spirit is guiding him to speak. Uh, again, none of this is to say that Jesus is not God or that he's just like other men. Clearly, there are distinctions there. He's given the fullness of the Spirit, uh, but he perfectly submitted to the leading of the Spirit, unlike any of us. And so he was guided by the Spirit as a human. Matthew 12, verse 28, uh, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so the Spirit not only gives him words of God to say, John 3, the Spirit also gives Jesus power to perform his miracles. And so when he casts out demons, when he does those sort of uh, supernatural things, it is the Spirit that is guiding him and empowering him to do so. Uh, which I take to mean, by the way, that Jesus did not have this miracle power prior to the baptism. At the baptism is when the Spirit comes on him and remains on him, and it's the Spirit that empowers him to do these miraculous things. So, and I'm sure... I don't know how many of you are familiar with apocryphal books like the Gospel of Thomas. Um, there are some later books that people tried to squeeze into the New Testament, basically. Thomas didn't write it. It was written a couple hundred years after his death. But in the Gospel of Thomas, it's been a while since I've read it, um, there are all sorts of kind of crazy stories about Jesus as a kid, you know, when he's six years old or something, healing a butterfly and impressing, you know, he gets mad at one of his friends and he strikes him dead. Um, I, that's wrong for a lot of reasons, but I think one reason is that Jesus was not filled with the Spirit until the baptism. There's something different that takes place at that point in time. I don't believe he had that miracle power before. Uh, John 2 would seem to indicate that, right? When Jesus turns water into wine, uh, John tells us this was the first of his miracles. 
So I, I don't believe he had that sort of uh, supernatural abilities prior to the baptism. Anyways, uh, let's see here. Verse uh, Acts 10, verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Uh, by the way, it's a pretty good indication also of the, de the deity of the Spirit. You know, it is God anointed him with the Spirit, so he fills him with his Holy Spirit. Jesus goes about doing good and healing because the Spirit's power is in him, and then it says, for God was with him. Uh, so kind of a roundabout uh, indication of the Spirit's deity there. But you notice there that the Spirit was with Jesus as he went around, as he taught, as he did healings, everything that Jesus did, he did, being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hebrews 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So Jesus was led by the Spirit uh, even into his death. It was the Spirit that gave Jesus the strength to lay his life down. Uh, you remember he says, you know, I could call 10,000 angels, have you all killed and, and get off this cross, but he doesn't. Because the Holy Spirit was giving him the power, the strength, the courage to stay there and endure that. Uh, what's really interesting to me is that Jesus also seems to be guided by the Spirit after his resurrection. Okay, for example, Acts 1. Luke tells us in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's the Gospel of Luke, verse 2. Until the day that he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. What is that referring to there? Post-resurrection, he gives commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. What is he talking about? This is the day he's ascending to heaven. Right, but we're talking about Great Commission, right? When Jesus gives those commands to the apostles as he's ascending to heaven, and he says, go out into all the nations, you know, baptize, make disciples. And it says he does that through the Holy Spirit. This is post-resurrection, glorified body Jesus. He's about to ascend to heaven. And he still is being guided by the Holy Spirit. And this makes sense if you think about where we started, those prophecies in Isaiah. Those are about Jesus being guided by the Spirit and thus establishing justice throughout the world, ruling perfectly because of his filling by the Spirit, none of which we see perfectly fulfilled yet. And so those are talking about his second coming, his return, uh, when Jesus comes back. So, in other words, the point there is, He's filled with the Spirit, not only in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He continues to be filled by the Spirit forever. Even at the last day when he returns and he's ruling over all the world, he's doing so, being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This kind of get back, gets back to you know, the extra Calvinisticum that I mentioned last week. The doctrine that says Jesus remains a physical person. He still is a human um, he, he hasn't just sort of dissipated into his spirit and, and set aside his body. His body's been glorified, changed in some ways, but he still is a physical being. Uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1. We're going to go back to the, a prophecy we saw at the beginning, and we're going to keep reading. And you'll see that this is not talking about just Jesus and his incarnation, but this is new heavens, new earth. This is at the very end. Jesus is still led by God's Spirit. Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come forth a shoot... 
From the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Isn't that interesting? So when Jesus is ruling on the last day, he's not just sort of deciding things on his own. He is doing so as the Spirit of God leads him. Okay, verse 4. With righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf, the lion, the fatted calf together, little child shall lead them. Uh, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The, nurse, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall uh, put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. So that's a picture of the new heavens and new earth, of course, when everything is you know, peace, there's no more death, uh, there's no more pain, no more suffering, because Jesus is ruling all of the world in perfect justice. And then verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for, for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, uh, Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations, will assemble the banished of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is clearly talking about the end of the age when Jesus uh, fully establishes his rule and kingdom over all of the world. Okay? And back at the very beginning of that chapter, he does so by the Holy Spirit's power. The spirit of wisdom is on him, guiding him as he makes these decisions. He's not ruling based on what his ears hear and his eyes see. He's ruling as the Holy Spirit gives him wisdom. Okay, any questions on Jesus being filled with the Spirit? We're going to transition now to us, but any questions there? Well, that's, uh, that's a great question. Now you're getting into uh, controversial end time stuff. Some people would view, oh man, um, <clears throat> covenant theology is a, a system of belief that basically says the church replaces Israel. Um, and they would look at passages in Romans about uh, you know, the olive tree and the grafting in of Gentiles and basically saying that this is talking about all Christians, not just Jews dispensationalists would argue the other side and say, no, there is still a unique, um, God still has a unique plan and future for the nation of Israel. Um, I don't have real firm opinions on that yet. I have a lot more study to do. So, but that's an open question and something that is very controversial. Uh, but anyway, so spirit is, is filling Christ. Y'all see that spirit's filling Christ throughout his, you know, from the baptism forward to the end of time, it seems to me. That Jesus is led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. All right. Um, let's try to, uh, we're probably not going to get through all of this today, but we'll start with this, the Holy Spirit in us as New Testament Christians. Okay, so we're transitioning now to post-resurrection. Um, we, we said that in the Old Testament, it appears certain people were filled with the Spirit, and in most cases, it 
at least it, the indication seems to be that it was temporary, that it was connected to a specific service, uh, a role or a task that God had for them. You know, you see Saul as king, he's anointed with the Spirit, and then as he disobeys the Spirit's prompting, uh, God takes the Holy Spirit from him. Okay, so it seems to be temporary, certainly not lifelong, permanent. Uh, you know, once you have the Spirit, you're set. No, the Spirit comes and goes. Uh, Samson, the Spirit comes on him, rushes on him, and then he does some supernatural thing, and then the Spirit's gone again. Um, uh, in the New Testament, a major shift takes place in the way that the Spirit interacts with the people of God. This is after Pentecost. <clears throat> uh, John the Baptist <clears throat> was the first to kind of allude to this in Mark chapter 1, when he says concerning Jesus, uh, verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. By the way, the word baptize um, is what we call a uh, transliteration, meaning all that the translators of the King James did is they took baptizo in Greek and just kind of put English letters to it. Okay, the word means immerse. Uh, that's one reason we believe in baptism by immersion, not sprinkling, because the word literally means immerse or dunk under water. Um, so when you see, I'm gonna, I baptize you with water, John says, you know, I'm taking you in the Jordan River, I'm, I'm immersing you in water. Jesus is going to come and he's going to immerse you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is talking about the Spirit's filling us. Um, and, and, Je and Jesus himself alluded to this different relationship with the Holy Spirit also in John 14. He says uh, to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So you see a distinction there. Uh, between the Spirit's role prior to Pentecost and afterwards. It's not that the Spirit had never empowered people in the past. We saw examples of that in the Old Testament where he clearly did. But something uh, qualitatively different happens at Pentecost with the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the people of God. It's, it's different from that point forward. There's a, a more full experience of the Holy Spirit's filling for New Testament believers. And if you want specifics about what all of that means, I really can't give you that. But in some way, it's, it's just a fuller experience than what the Old Testament saints had uh, experienced themselves. Two chapters later, John 16, 7, Jesus is still speaking to his disciples and he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. I mean, can you imagine that? You're standing there with Jesus, the Son of God in a human body, and, and he's leading you, he's teaching you, you're getting to hear God himself speak to you and teach you, and he says, it is to your advantage that I leave. Because if I, if I don't leave, all you've got is me. If I leave, you get the Holy Spirit, and that's better. I mean, I, I feel like the disciples listening to this would have thought, no way, no way that's better. There is no way that being filled with the Spirit is going to be more advantageous for us than having God himself standing here talking to us. And yet that's what Jesus says. <clears throat> and if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, if we had the choice, you want to be filled with the Spirit like you are now as a Christian, or do you want to have Jesus right there next to you 
leading you and talking to you like, like a normal human, God himself, which one would we pick? <clears throat> I mean, if we're honest, every one of us would pick Jesus. Of course that would be better. And yet he says, no, it is to your advantage that I leave and send the Holy Spirit. And this gets to something that I've been thinking about a lot uh, over the last couple of weeks as I've been kind of meditating on the role of the Spirit in our lives. Um, I am convinced that we have really underappreciated the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, I don't think we realize how much the Spirit does in each one of us. Uh, we, we chalk things up to just natural abilities. We chalk things up to personal growth. Uh, when in reality, the credit really ought to be given to the Holy Spirit. I want to look at one example, and this will probably be as far as we get, of what I mean by that. Um, Peter, the Apostle Peter. Prior to the Spirit dwelling in Peter, so prior to Pentecost, uh, he was a mess, right? <laughs> you read the Gospels, he pretty much is always saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Uh, toward the end of the Gospels, when Jesus is taken captive, he cowers in fear when a girl asks him if he was a follower of Jesus and denies ever even knowing him. Then after the Holy Spirit is given to Peter, we see him preaching about Jesus being raised from the dead. Acts 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem when Annas, I'm sorry, with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the, priest, the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. By the way, notice that in verse 8. He begins to speak, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a very similar situation to where we were at the end of Matthew's gospel, I believe chapter 26, right? Where they ask him, are you with Jesus? And he just says, no. He starts cursing. He denies him, right? He cowers in fear before the very question of being associated with Christ. Similar situation here. <clears throat> You've got <clears throat> the leaders of Israel coming to him, the same people who killed Jesus, right? So they've got some, some weight here. They've got some authority to really mess up his life, maybe end his life. And they come to him and say, uh, how are you doing this? And he doesn't, he doesn't deny Jesus. He, he filled with the Spirit, says, verse 9, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by, uh, <clears throat> by what means this man has been healed, he had, he had previously uh, healed a crippled man at the temple. That's what he's referring to. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not only does he not deny Jesus, I mean, he just gives it to him straight. And he, he gets in their face and says, you guys killed the Son of God. He's the only way of salvation. You've rejected him and he's going to crush you. I mean, he just gives it to him. Where does this boldness come from? Where does this courage come from in Peter? He goes from cowering in fear in the end of Matthew, the end of the Gospels, 
And here he is, empowered, speaking boldly and courageously to these people that eventually throw him in prison and you know, really mess up his life. And it's the Holy Spirit empowering him that leads him to do that. And most of us, if we saw somebody boldly standing up for their faith, we'd say, oh, good job. We, we, would, we would just credit it all to them. Oh, that's a great, great leader in Christianity. Without, without realizing, no, it's the Holy Spirit working in them. That's what I mean by, I, I just think we, we downplay the role of the Spirit in each one of our lives. We don't realize uh, how, how much of an impact He is making in and through us. Verse 13 of uh, Acts 4, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's another difference that the Holy Spirit makes in somebody like Peter. Uh, he was a simple fisherman. He was uneducated, as it says there. And yet you see the, the unbelievable eloquence and wisdom in his sermons and in his uh, two epistles, right? Where did that come from? It didn't come from Peter. He wasn't educated. It was the Holy Spirit's guidance. Uh, this seems to be what Jesus is talking about in Luke 21, when he tells them, uh, before all this, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. So he's talking about them being put on trial for being followers of Christ. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is exactly what we see happening with Peter. He, he was given wisdom. He was given the words to say when he was on trial. And it's not a result of his preparation or his eloquence or his education, but the Holy Spirit filling him. Uh, think of all those times in the Gospels when Jesus explains, you know, so simply a, a, ba a basic theological point, like, uh, I'm going to be arrested in Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise the third day. And the disciples are going, huh? Like, they just never get it. He says things so clearly, and, and they act like they just cannot understand. What changed? You know, how are the apostles, all of a sudden in the book of Acts and following, capable of understanding so much, speaking and writing such thick theological books as, as what we have in the New Testament? Uh, if you read them, it's just hard to believe that these are the same people doing and saying stupid things throughout the Gospels. And I feel like the difference there is the Holy Spirit's filling. Uh, and I just, I just wonder how much of the filling of the Spirit do we chalk up to, well, that, that guy's just really smart, or he's talented, uh, or he's, you know, he's just good at that. Instead of thinking, no, this is the Spirit's work in this person's life. Um. And, you know, just we'll close there today because we are out of time. I would say in my own life, I see some of that for sure. You know, w when I was a kid, I hated reading. Oh, my goodness, I hated reading. And now it's like, you know, when I was saved at 14, suddenly a shift took place in my mind where all of a sudden I, I wanted to read, I wanted to study. Um, where does that come from, right? Where, where does that sort of thing come from if not from the Holy Spirit? And so I just have a feeling that we tend to, Chalk up, you know, if you think throughout your, your own life, ways in which you've grown, in which you've become a better Christian, um, don't just chalk that up to, oh, well, I've just grew, grew in that area. You know, that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, making you more like Christ. Gifts and abilities that you have, you know, maybe some of those are natural talents, but maybe some of those are the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of those are the empowering of God, uh, giving you the ability to do the things that he wants you to do. And so, uh, again, just think of the words of Christ. It is better for you to be filled with the Spirit 
than to have Jesus living and breathing, standing right next to you. And uh, that's, that's a good thing, I think, for us to meditate on. What, what difference does the Spirit make in each one of our lives?